Hello, welcome back. I'm your host, Evan Brand, board-certified holistic nutritionist, certified functional medicine practitioner, nutritional therapy practitioner, and I was certified in personal training, but I think that certification expired, so maybe I won't talk about that anymore, but I'm glad you're here. We're going to get into this episode with Dr. Stephen Rich, who's a professor and a clinical director of a company called Tick Report. They test your ticks that you send into them and can detect whether they have Borrelia, which is the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. They can detect mycoplasma and all sorts of other co-infections, all by just sending in your tick to them. So very interesting. Before we get into the show, I'd like to mention two things. One, my professional-grade supplements, Aura Roots, A-U-R-A, Roots, R-O-O-T-S, so AuraRoots.com, and my website, EvanBrand.com. You can schedule consults. You can access my supplements. All of that's at my site, evanbrand.com. Let's get into the show. Enjoy. Professor Stephen Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, so I found you through a friend of mine, Dr. Elisa Song. Uh, She's a medical doctor who, she just wrote an article about ticks and Lyme disease and how she approaches it. And someone in the comment section said, hey, this article is not complete. You've not talked about tickreport.com. And so she's like, oh, my bad. And then she put the website on there. Of course, I had to research the website, and then I found you. So I'm so glad I did. Can you tell people about Tick Report? When did this come into existence, and how did this whole thing come about? Excuse me. We've been at this for about 11 years now. We started Tick Report in 2006. And it basically, it, it was birthed on the heels of uh, some NIH-funded research that I was doing to look at ticks and tick-borne diseases here in Massachusetts. Um, and it, as that project wound down back in 2005, 2006, we realized that one of the um, unhappy circumstances of the end of that project was that we weren't going to be continuing um, a surveillance effort here. Basically, by collecting ticks from around the state, we were getting a glimpse of what pathogens were in what ticks in different parts of the state. <clears throat> it may surprise you or surprise your listeners to know that there is no systematic tick-borne surveillance in Massachusetts or any other state, uh, not state-funded nor uh, federally funded. There are individual projects like that NIH project we had before where people go out and take it upon themselves to collect ticks for whatever thing they may be studying at the time, but nothing sustained. Wow. So in 2006, we thought, you know, we ought to do something about that, but it costs money, and we didn't really know how to put it all together. So <clears throat> we had the wherewithal to test ticks. We didn't have the people power to collect the ticks, and we said, so we said perhaps we should just tell people that we could test their ticks if they send them to us. And I'll be quite honest with you, we hadn't really thought out um, what – that would mean, you know, we were a little concerned. We wanted people to understand that if we test ticks, it's not the same as testing them. We're not testing people for the presence or absence of disease. We are testing ticks for the presence or absence of these pathogens that cause disease. And so off we go. We, we put up a, um, a page on our university extension. So that's the folks that do uh, testing for mostly agricultural crops. They look at different bugs that feed on tomato plants and that kind of thing. And we said, look, here's another service. We can test your ticks. And that first year, I think we tested about 100 ticks. Next year, we doubled that. Next year, we doubled that. 
and just so on and so on until 2013 was a huge growth year for us. By then, we had added additional pathogens like the co-infections that you mentioned, um, and we took a crucial step of um, we, we basically, I should say this is a fee-for-service, so we took a big leap of faith and we said, well, we at the time we were charging $140. We thought, well, maybe if we charged less, so we'd reduce that $140 to $50, more people would come and we'd still be able to, to sort of maintain it because absent any federal or state dollars, we were crowdsourcing this, crowdfunding it. And we thought, if enough folks do it at $50, perhaps we can keep this sustained. And that's when it really took off was in 2014. Wow. And uh, now we'll test about 10,000 ticks a year. Um, and it's a sustainable surveillance protocol. It, uh, we have a number of state agencies and uh, even the National Science Foundation tests this, or pays us to test their ticks and their uh, NEON site, National Ecological Observatory Network sites. And it's just, it's gone places we we hadn't really predicted it was going to go in, in very much in a happy way. And that while we still, 11 years on, know that we're not diagnosing disease in people, we realize that we're giving them some of the best insights about their tick exposures and the earliest insights about their tick exposures. Because where their bodies may take three weeks, their human bodies may take three weeks to um, to convert to a stage where they would test positive or negative, depending, in a, in a blood test, we can give people answers about their tick exposures in one to three business days. That's insane. Now, so you are actually on the campus of University of Massachusetts. Is that right? That's where your lab is? That's right. And we're, we're right in the middle of the university. And I'm a professor here. And as such, I'm, you know, my salary is paid. I'm paid by the university. But everything else, all the laboratory that does the tick testing is all generated from this. Uh, it's all supported by crowdsource means. That is incredible. So let's talk some statistics. I'm so happy to hear about the growth of the lab. What's the tick population done, whether it's nationwide, whether it's just up in Massachusetts where you're familiar with, uh, since 2000, let's just say 2006 when you guys started, what's the tick population doing? Well, one thing we can say for sure, and this is uh, stealing a quote from a friend of mine who uh, from the University of Rhode Island, Tom Mather, is that there's more ticks in more places than we've ever seen before. So I grew up in upstate New York, um, and when I grew up, we didn't see ticks. We, we didn't know ticks. Um, now when I go to visit family there, there's ticks in that area. Not the same number of ticks that we see here in Massachusetts, but they're in those kinds of places that, that they weren't previously. So there are more ticks in more places. The other piece of this is that people often want to say that this year is a bad year or that, that year is a, you know, a, a more extreme year for ticks. Based on the work that we've been doing, so I've been studying ticks since 1993, um, and many of my colleagues and senior colleagues have been doing that longer than I. And w one of the things we find is that tick populations fluctuate from year to year from site to site. So one year they might be high one place, next year they might be low at that place, and this it's it's really very very difficult to figure out weather patterns or or other ecological factors. So there is a um, some excellent um, ecologists in in New York and in, in, uh, East Millbrook, New York, at the um, 
Carey Institute that have found some very compelling evidence that link some ecological factors to when ticks go up and down. Whether that can really be extrapolated to the rest of the world um, remains to be seen. So long story short, ticks are in more places than they ever were. Whether the ticks that always, excuse me, whether the places that always had ticks are seeing more ticks than, than in the past, I think the jury's still out at that on that. And the reason I think it's, I sort of caution against saying uh, that there's more ticks in an individual spot than there were in the past is that I don't want people to get uh, sort of numbed to the idea that, oh, it's a crazy big, you know, tick calamity year and, and uh, sort of have a, you know, boy who cried wolf kind of scenario where um, people just get tone deaf to the idea of hearing that ticks are, uh, ticks are in abundance. Ticks are, are not going away. They're out there. They pose a risk. We should be aware of it. Makes sense. Well said. My friend Daniel Vitalis, he lives up in Maine. I told him I was going to interview you, so I'm sure he'll be reaching out to you as well to to get you on his podcast. I was looking up Maine. I think what's cool is on your website, tickreport.com, people can view the statistics. So it looked like in Maine, for example, you guys have over a 1,000 ticks tested, and 38% of those have Borrelia general species. So if it's not Borrelia, uh, Borge, how do you say the... The, the Latin of that cycle? Burgdorferi. Burgdorferi. Okay, so if it says Borrelia general species, are all Borrelia bad and can cause illness? Uh, almost all Borrelia are bad. Some are questionable about whether they're actually pathogens. So there's a Borrelia in Lone Star ticks, and it's not clear that it really makes people sick. Um, but all Borrelia burgdorferi are, are generally associated with Lyme disease. Um, yeah, so what you're seeing is in Borrelia general species, so one of the things we run in, run up against is there's a lot of folks in the public that have heard messages that dog ticks have Lyme disease or non-deer ticks have Lyme disease. And we found that despite our, you know, qu- quoting uh, scientific publications, we really can't convince people that something they've read on the Internet isn't true. So we still offer that deer, that uh that testing service for dog ticks. Someone wants to have their dog tick test, we test it. And they all turn out negative and people are always happy to, to have the information. Um, but as part of that process, we include a general category that will basically detect any Borrelia in the known Borrelia world. So any um, bacterial species in that genus can be detected with that first assay. And that way we can be sure that we're not missing something that perhaps hasn't been, uh, hasn't been described yet. Um, and we have had a couple of rare hits by using that general species. We're still, in fact, they just come within the past couple of months, and we're still trying to bear in and figure out exactly what that is, whether they're mutants of known species or whether they may actually be new pathogens. But we include that just basically as a, or you can think of it as a, a bigger net. So we have a little net that will catch exactly the fish we want, which is Borrelia burgdorferi, and then we have a larger net that will basically catch anything in the sea of Borrelia that's out there. Got it. So are you talking about these new ones? Are you talking about the Powassan that so many people are fearful of this year? So Powassan is not a, not a Borrelia. It's a virus, so it's not a bacterium. Um, and it's not particularly new, so it's been known since the 1950s, first identified in Powassan, Ontario. But every couple of years, <clears throat> there's a case or two, and unfortunately, they're very devastating cases. It causes an encephalitis. People end up in the hospital. There's a fairly high mortality rate. And so that really gets people aware, you know, that this thing is coming out. But it's it's been going on, you know, it's been known here in the Northeast for at least 15 or more years. 
um, and there are just those very exceptional cases of uh, of, um, of human disease. Now, interesting enough, if if you were to go and look at what what data has been collected until let's say the last six months or so, we basically had two types two two pictures of what Powassan looked like out there. One was we had this. Uh, every couple of years, instances of people that end up in the hospital with very severe viral infections, and as I said, many of them end up uh, succumbing or dying from that infection. And then we have some information from different studies done around the country, some of which we've actually done, looking at um, ticks in the wild. And we find that some of the ticks in the wild, some little pockets of ticks in the wild might have as high as 9 or 10% infection rate. That means one out of 10 ticks at some of these rare sites might have Powassan virus. So we have a hard time putting those two bits of information together. We know that people get bit all the time by ticks. We know that there's a fairly high infection rate in some of those sites, but we're not seeing people, forgive the expression, but we're not seeing people drop like flies. We're not seeing people come down with severe Powassan virus very often. And so this is only emerging in the past six months that we started doing when, when tick report started looking at Powassan virus that we started to see the picture that, well, maybe Powassan virus looks a lot more like another virus that's fairly closely related to it called West Nile virus. You might recall that back around 2000 West Nile virus, um, a mosquito borne virus sort of erupted and spread across the country. We now know that lots of people get West Nile virus. Lots of people get bitten by mosquitoes and exposed to West Nile virus, even develop antibodies against it. But very, very few of us get sick. So we're starting to get the picture that that might be exactly what's going on with Powassan virus. And what looked like a very, and still is a very serious disease in, in a small number of cases, it's not really like the next Ebola. It's not like... Uh, like this is going to be affecting people in a, in, a, in a really big way. At least that's what our preliminary findings from Tick Report are pointing to. Got it. Wow. So in, overall, it looks like you are coming up maybe, and maybe even more since uh, since the site's going to continually update, but almost 30,000 ticks in the database so far. So it looks like overall about 25% of ticks are showing up with the bacteria that causes Lyme. And then it looks like smaller percentage of all of these other different bacteria. Does that sound about right? That's right. So, excuse me, Lyme is by far the most abundant, and then the other ones are much more rare. And it's not to say that those are any less important. So, um, in fact, in some ways, tick report is most useful for those rarer pathogens because very often what happens is when someone gets exposed to a rare pathogen, the docs may not even um, I don't want to say they don't know about it, but they might not be. It might not be on their radar screen when they're going through and trying to make their uh, their diagnosis. So we have accumulated a number of anecdotes over the years where, you know, a parent will send a tick in. They've got a sick kid. Um, we test the tick, and it comes up with one of these rare pathogens. So one great story um, that, that 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 always you know. I feel very satisfied about was a kid from Oregon. The parents sent us the tick. Kid was really sick in the hospital. Docs are trying to figure out what's going on. We find out that the t- tick had uh, Francisella tularensis, the agent of tularemia. We were able to share that information with the with the parents. They turned it over to the doc. The doc was particularly astute and receptive to the, you know, to trying to figure out what was wrong with this kid. Got to the diagnosis, and the kid recovered. If they hadn't had that tick tested, or more perhaps even if they hadn't, you know, made note that there was some association between the illness and that tick bite. 
they might have hunted around for a while to actually get to that diagnosis. And this is a this is a very dangerous bacterial infection that could have could have turned out worse than it did. Wow. So finding that out, they were able to give, I'm going to guess, antibiotics or something similar to treat it. Exactly. Yep. Wow. And, and we have a we have a growing number of cases, and now we've got to the point where we just we're starting to publish these uh, as case reports, just to get the word out there, so that we can, people can appreciate um, the value of doing this testing. Oh, I think that's great. So you're going to do like a blog on your on the TickReport.com site to post those. No, I'm talking about peer-reviewed publications in medical journals. So oh, even the last one went in a pediatric um, infectious disease journal. Cool. That's great. That's great. Now, in terms of ticks, uh, are people are do they, do they? I guess they don't give you this information, but generally speaking, are people picking these up just in their backyard? Is it always in the woods? Is it always at the forest edge on a on some grass that's taller that rubbed against your ankles? I mean, do we know like where people are picking these up? How we're coming across these, just so we can be more aware. Yeah, so people pick them up all over the place. They may pick them up in their garden. They may pick pick them up on the way to the beach, just walking through the brushy areas getting to the beach. They may pick them up on a forest uh, forest trail. Um, one of the things we find out is that um, very often people – so we'll get we've, – we've had ticks submitted from all 50 states now. Now, we don't believe that deer ticks are present in Hawaii, but we've had ticks submitted from Hawaii. And a little bit further uh, investigation on that, we find out this was someone who had traveled to uh, to Massachusetts immediately before sending us that tick. So that's one of the things that happens is people get bit in one area, and then they take their tick back, and they end up being, uh, you know, if they come down with illness, they end up being a case of illness at the site that that that, uh, that they live, not the place where they actually got the tick bite. So there again, tick report helps us to sort that out because we ask people to tell us not only where they live, but where they believe they got the tick exposure. Got it. Okay. Now, uh, in terms of prevention, so many people talk about DEET and permethrin and all these other chemicals. Have you seen, have you tried, have you tested, or do you have advice on natural solutions? I mean, or you hear about lemon eucalyptus as an essential oil for protection. You hear about some of these others. Do, are you aware of any that are going to give you the same level of protection without the chemicals? So uh, just answering the first part of your question, so I'm a very big fan of permethrin. So permethrin is an acaricide. It kills ticks. Um, it's not a repellent. It's uh, it's not repelling or pushing the ticks away. It kills them on contact, and it's uh, specially formulated to adhere to the fabric of our clothing. So we treat our shoes, we treat our socks. And when I say we, I mean all the members of my lab, but also my family members. Um, you treat your pant legs. Um, there's a bunch of different uh, um, brand names or you know manufacturers of it. It's usually pretty pretty inexpensive. Um, you can purchase it, you spray it onto your clothes, you let them dry, and then it's good for a couple of washes. You can also buy clothing lines through different uh, clothing outlets that will give you clothing that's already treated, comes uh, from the store treated with permethrin. And what's beautiful about permethrin is it's 2,000 times more deadly to ticks than it is to humans, meaning it has an extraordinarily high safety profile, EPA approved. EPA has looked at this inside now and says this is not a harm to uh, a risk to humans, but it's deadly to ticks. And that's, that's about as good as it gets. From there, you can go to DEET, which isn't an acaricide. It doesn't kill insects, but it is a repellent. So what it does is it prevents um, 
it prevents feeding by basically repelling the ticks. They, they sort of imagine like a, um, an animal coming to an electric fence, sort of getting zapped and going back. That's sort of the image of what DEET does. It pushes ticks away and uh, in doing so prevents them from feeding. Now there's a whole litany of, um, of uh, um, natural products. And I should say that permethrin, by the way, is it's actually a synthetic derivative of a natural compound. So all insecticides have at their root some plant compound, some of which have been sort of synthetically improved upon by chemists, but they all have a natural, a natural um, origin. But the truly natural products, the, you know, the essential oils and the, um, the cedar tree oils, that's, those kinds of things. What I can say, and uh, your, your listeners, many of your listeners will um, be repelled themselves by this idea, but there's very little evidence, scientific evidence, of their efficacy. There's just not a lot of evidence that they work as good as these synthetic compounds like DEET and, and, and permethrin. Now, having said that, and to try to get back in the good graces of your listeners that are now ready to <laughs> jump through the speaker, um, if it works, so be it. I mean, if, if there's no scientific evidence and you're convinced that, you know, you put on your uh, your tea tree oil and you've never been bitten by a tick, well, good for you. I mean, just, just keep going at it. We're not trying to tell anybody not to do something that they're comfortable with. Um, but uh, it's sort of my obligation as a scientist to say that every time these have been looked at scientifically, not by myself, but by others and peer-reviewed, it just doesn't seem to, to hold up to the... To the um, what the other, what the synthetic products do. So it would be irresponsible of me to to suggest anything otherwise. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I'm reading about the permethrin now. That's makes me feel a bit better. You say that once it dries, it's okay. Because I was thinking the whole time you're spraying this stuff on at the time of use. So right before you go on a trail, you're going to spray it on, and like on their directions, they say if you breathe it in, get the fresh air. Call poison control center. You know, maybe they maybe they have to say that. Maybe you'll say, you know what, I've inhaled it, I'm fine. Uh, but I like the idea of it drying first, so that's that's totally fine. And it sounds like basically, if you're in an outdoor environment, you can spray your clothes if you know you're going to go hiking that day. By the time it dries, you're likely not going to smell or have any of this to even breathe in. Is that right? That's right. And I I don't know offhand, but one of the re- one of the reasons that often they, they say don't breathe these things in is not because of the active ingredient, but the solvents that are used to carry that to your clothing. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a solid substance that's in a, that's in a solution. And so you put it in an organic solvent and it's really the organic solvent that you don't want to breathe. So that's going to sublimate off and then you're going to have this stuff impregnated into your clothing. Got it. And just as a sideline, so people can do this for curiosity because people love to look on the internet, but um, every chemical or every um, substance that's used, for example, in a laboratory or used as an a pesticide application situation has a material safety data sheet, an MSDS. And in there are described the risks associated with these chemistries, what's known to happen in people and rats and et cetera. They're all very, very long documents. And just for fun, you can go and look at the MSDS sheets for permethrin. You could look at the MSDS sheets for things like table salt, which we obviously many of us eat. Many of us that have high blood pressure may not, maybe shouldn't eat as much as we should, but you would find that there are warnings associated with table uh, with table salt that you shouldn't get into your eyes, for example, that you probably shouldn't breathe the powder from from table salt. So that that kind of thing. So 
those those warnings are always set up on the side of um, you know being extra safe, and that's not necessarily should not be necessarily interpreted to think that oh my goodness I'm putting something really dangerous onto my body. Got it. Okay, something I and this is a bit off topic, but something interesting to me is that this permethrin, uh, and correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but that it can also be used for scabies, as well. So this can kill mites. Yeah. So one of the one of the downsides of permethrin is that it's it's uh, it kills arthropods of all kinds. So it'll kill ticks and scabies mites. It'll kill mosquitoes. In fact, military the, the military the BDUs the um, uniforms they wear are impregnated with with permethrin for this very reason to protect themselves from mosquitoes and uh, other pathogens. But it also will kill bees. So that's one of the reasons one might not consider spraying it, um, you know, spraying it um, indiscriminately around in the environment. But if it's on your clothing, it may affect a bee that lands on your pet leg, but it's not going to kill bees in your beehive, even in your backyard. Got it. So yeah, it's it's a broad spectrum. Um, it's called a, a pesticide or an acaricide. Got it. Okay. What else should we know about ticks? What questions uh, have I not asked that I should ask? Well, one of the things, so <clears throat> again, for folks that or maybe have a, an aversion to use of chemistry on their clothing or their bodies is you can really do a lot to protect yourself from tick bites just by being um, vigilant and finding the ticks on your person. And so for your kids and your pets, depending on whether your pet has long hair or not, but on your kids for sure, um, you can you can just do body checks every morning and every night and get those ticks off. And you do a lot for yourself if you get those ticks off in 12 hours because the ticks really have to be attached for a length of time before they transmit their pathogen payload into the host that they're feeding on. So if, if ticks are only feeding for you on you for you know 12 up to 24 hours, you have substantially reduced the risk of your exposure to whatever's inside that tick. Now, again, your re- your listeners are going to be, because Lyme is a phenomenon where so much information is out there, many of your re- readers or your listeners will hear this and they'll sort of recoil and they'll be like, oh, that's, uh, you know, it's not 12 hours, it's 8 hours, or it's not 20 All the best science suggests that it's it's 24 hours minimum feeding time to transmit that, that uh, payload from the tick into the person. Now, is 12 hours better than 24 hours? Absolutely. Is 6 hours better than 12 hours? Absolutely. Is no tick better than, any t- than a tick bite? Absolutely. <laughs> but the point should be... Um, to not get folk, to, to get people out of this mindset, and surprisingly, I do a lot of talks in libraries and beekeeper groups and gardening clubs, and it's surprising how many people are just terrified by ticks. And you don't really, one should not be terrified. One should not be frightened. We never make good decisions when we're tired, when, 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 we're, when we're frightened. And so we should recognize this uh, and become enlightened in the same way that when I was a kid, um, you know, we would just go to the beach and not think, think, anything, think anything of it. Now we wouldn't go to the beach without sunscreen. So this is the same kind of thing. We've got ticks now. It's a management issue. We shouldn't sit at home and think, oh, I never, I'm never going to go for a hike again because I'm afraid of ticks. That's a management issue. You can pull the ticks off. You can use the chemistries if you want. Just be aware. And lastly, if you have failed to pull the tick off, well, then by all means, consider having it tested because you can get very good information about that tick exposure from laboratories like ours, from Tick Report. You send it to Tick Report, we can tell you if it's one of the um, 
50% of the adults, actually adult ticks, are infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, the causative agent of Lyme disease. We can tell you. Were you one of the ones that got 50% or were one of the lucky ones that um, didn't get 50, 50% infection rate? Got it. Okay, so you just said the word adult. So the nymphs, the small ones, are they still transmitting the bacteria as well, or is it mainly adults you're seeing that are responsible for the Lyme? They are. So you were looking at our online stats page. So that's tickreport.com slash stats. So what you're looking at there probably is the aggregate for some total of infection rate across adults and nymphs. Now, adult ticks have fed twice in their life, and so they have two times of getting infected. Ticks are born uninfected, and they acquire infection when they feed on an infected animal, usually a white-footed mouse. Adult ticks have usually taken two of those, so they're twice as likely to be infected as nymphal ticks. So nymphal ticks about 25%, adult ticks about um, 50%. So when you look at our aggregate data, it comes out to about 33% across all all the ticks. But it's important pe- for people to know that um, we're coming here in the Northeast, here in, um, in New England, we're coming to the end of the adult tick season. So the 50% infection rate is going away. And now we're coming into, or ra- actually ra- getting into the peak of nymphal season, where about 30, uh, me, about 25% of the ticks are infected. However, most Lyme disease cases start in this period that we're in right now. And the reason is that nymphal ticks are much, much smaller than adult, uh, than adult ticks. And so they very often go undetected and have the ability to do that 24 or 40 hour, 48 or even 72 hour feeding that's required to transmit their pathogens into the host. Wow, got it. Okay, so as we're speaking for folks, it's uh, late June here. So late June uh, in Kentucky, I guess it would be the same thing. I mean, we're a little bit warmer than you guys up there. So uh, it sounds like fall, winter time. When do ticks stop or when do they become inactive? Does it depend on, is there a specific number? Is there specific weather where we know that they're they're done for the season or how does that work? Well, they'll always surprise us because... Uh, you know, there's always these fluctuations, as I said before, it it's, can be tough to predict. But generally speaking, we'll go through the uh, the month of July and we'll see the, uh, the nymphal season, and then we'll come to larval season. So most of August and September will be larval deer ticks here in the Northeast, as well as in the Midwest. Um, and larval ticks are not infected with Lyme disease. They're hatched out of their eggs, uh, basically clean of Lyme disease. They do have other pathogens. They do carry things like Powassan, and they carry other kinds of Borrelia, but those are much, much more rare. Like we're talking something less than 1% of the ticks are infected with them. So for the months of September, uh, August and September, we'll have larval season. Most people don't really even notice those tick bites, um, and the rates of infection are relatively low. Going into October, we'll start it all over again with adult season. We'll be back into 50% infection rate. And for places that get snow, we'll see basically ticks, adult ticks until the snow covers the ground. Then uh, nothing until the reemergence, until basically the snow melts and um, the ticks will reemerge in the spring as adults. Wow, got it. Okay, so for here in Kentucky, we had a mild winter. Now it still got cold. We still got into the 20s. We got into the teens in Fahrenheit. Um, do the ticks stop at that point, or is it the snow that changes things? It's the snow. It's the blanket of snow that really slows them down. The, the cold doesn't affect them quite so much. Um, ticks, surprisingly enough, are fairly fastidious. They're not really able to adjust to uh, 
to the changing weather conditions. So they, they are susceptible to being um, desiccating, to, to drying out too much. They also can get fungal infections. So if it's too moist, they, they have a problem with that. So much of the time that they're not, they're not on us, which is actually the vast majority of their life, even though the only thing they ever eat is blood, they spend most of their lifetime off our bodies living in leaf litter and basically molting and changing to their next life stage. And most of that time that they're, uh, that they're molting, they're just trying to manage their microenvironment to get someplace that's a little bit drier or a little bit moister, depending on what they need. Wow. So you're, when you're saying they're molting, uh, are they, when they go on to, let's say they go onto a deer or a mouse, how long are they staying on them? Do we, do we know about that? Yeah, that can be a week to 10 days for an adult tick. An adult tick, can, she'll take 200 times her body weight in blood. She'll, turn, she'll blow up um, you know, many times bigger than, uh, than her unfed stage, and then she'll use all of that concentrated uh, blood meal to, to produce 2,000 to 3,000 eggs and lay those eggs. But wow. it takes a week to 10 days to get fully fed like that. Okay, so then what happens? Do they un do they unlatch themselves and then they just go hang out on a tall blade of grass again? <coughs> Excuse me. So every stage, and there are three stages: larval, nymphal, and adult. Each one will take exactly one blood meal for that life stage, and then use all that blood meal to molt to the next stage, until they get to the adult stage. Then the adults feed. The adult females feed, as we just said, um, for seven to ten days. And the males don't breed, don't feed at all. They just basically wander around and look for females to to mate with. Um, he'll mate with her. He'll die. She'll fall. She'll be bred, fully fed, and then she'll fall off into the leaf litter, lay two thousand eggs, and then she'll die. And then the cycle of eggs starts the next generation. Wow. So if you get bit, it's going to be a female. Males do not bite. Is that correct? If you get bit by an adult tick, it's going to be a female. If you get bit by a larval or nymphal tick. It could be a male or a female, but we won't. They're basically not sexually dimorphic at that stage. They're not sexually mature at that stage. We don't know whether they're males or females. Can you tell just based on size? I mean, do you just learn after seeing multiple ticks? You know, okay, this is going to be a nymph based on size. Is that the only way to tell? Um, no, there's other markings. So if it's a deer tick, if we knew that it was a deer tick, we could tell just based on size whether it's an adult or a or a, or a nymphal tick or a larval tick. But since there's at least two other species of human biting tick throughout the eastern United States, basically, um, we need to look at other markers to distinguish whether they're um, lone star ticks, dog ticks, or deer ticks. Now, we have, um, we've made a, a tick identification tool. It's a clear plastic card that has little life-size uh, replicas of each of those ticks mounted on the, on the card, and you can hold that up to your skin if the ticks is attached to your skin, and you can compare it with the image of that tick and try to decide which species it is. And if anybody, uh, any of your listeners would care to have one of those, they can just email us at um, support at tickreport.com, and we'll send them cards or send them to for their uh, school groups or whoever else needs them. Perfect. Okay, so the black-legged tick, that's like a two-species tick where there's like an east coast, west coast. That's the same thing as the deer tick, right? Right. I use, yes, the, the deer tick is, a, is an older name, but yeah, it's, deer tick and black-legged tick are equivalent. Okay, and just for people listening, if you've seen them, obviously you can look online, but that it looks like a kind of like an amber, kind of a dark red, amber-looking butt, basically. 
And that's, the and female, I, yeah, has that very distinct, yeah, dark amber okay. backside. Okay. I'm trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to mention. In terms of your all's testing, you said even if it's broken, like a partial tick could still be tested, which I thought was great. You said that the ticks could be stored for months or even years under a variety of conditions and can still be tested. Um Let's see, what else should we cover in terms of the testing here? You said one to three business days, which is incredible. Um, partially fed. Can you explain that a bit? Right. So we want people to know that the that the infection is not the sole determinant of risk. It is a big determinant of risk. Uninfected ticks can infect people. But um, the other major determinant is how long that tick is fed. So we categorize ticks into three categories. We call them no visible signs of feeding. In, in other words, the tick doesn't appear to have attached, probably has almost a zero or zero percent chance of transmitting anything because it hasn't attached. We have the other extreme, which is the engorged tick. That's the ones that have fed for seven to 10 days. They look like big grapes and they're basically ready to burst. They pose the greatest risk. Um, and then we have a middle category, which we call partially fed. Um, and there are certain metrics that we could use to maybe narrow it down, whether it's a 1.5-day feeder or a 3.5-day feeder. The problem is by the time the ticks get to us, very often they're, they're, they're dried <clears throat> or they've been um, damaged when people are pulling the tick off. So we really don't have the ability to, to narrow it down. And so just for, for no other reason than to not mislead people, we just call those partially fed. Um, and then in follow-up, you know, some, sometimes it's possible to, to narrow that down a little bit more for a particular specimen. But partially fed tick is just meant to indicate that this is not a zero-risk tick like a unfed tick would or no visible signs of feeding would be. It's not <clears throat> the highest level of risk like engorged, but it's, uh, it's right in the middle. It's something to be concerned about. <clears throat> and our follow-up recommendation is if you get a positive uh, tick report if it comes back and it's positive for one or more pathogens. And I should say that sometimes these things might be positive for, for three or four or five different pathogens in one tick. Our, our recommendation is always to remember that it's not a diagnosis. However, keep an eye on the bite site because there are particular characteristics, rashes, for example, the bullseye rash that can occur, occur at that bite site. <clears throat> and just remember where the tick bit you and what it was infected with so that when you feel see a rash or experience signs of, signs of illness, you can share those along with the tick report to your, with your physician. And I think you'll find that you get much quicker to the diagnosis that um, if it is, in fact, a tick-borne ideology. Do you know about the, the transmission? So let's say you, you have a tick that tests positive for the Borella. <laughs> 10 times out of 10, do you know if that leads to Lyme or is it always case by case? I mean, do you believe certain people and their body, their immune system, their constitution, that their body can go ahead and start making, let's say, antibodies or something to fight this? Do you know about that? You know, that is a great, great question, and it's something that no one really knows much about. We don't know how many people might get exposed and or infected with these things and never get sick. There's little doubt that there are some people out there that get bitten by a tick that's fully fed, that's infected, that even infects that person. And for a one, one reason or another, <clears throat> their immune system just clears that infection. 
there's there's most certainly people like that. Um, we just don't know how many of them. It could be a one in a, a billion. It could be you know one in ten. We just really don't know. So another happy consequence of what of all this business we're doing with Tick Report and measuring that critical moment when the tick bites the person is we can actually do follow up. We can see what the clinical outcomes of those are. So we're starting to work with different organizations and, and, uh, and clinicians and, and testing agencies to see what are the outcomes of those tick bites. Now, w- we know anecdotally that many people go and see their doctor and they get a an anti- uh, uh, prophylactic treatment of uh, antibiotics or maybe a longer uh, therapy. Um, but we don't know necessarily, um, you know, how many of those people get infected. So we want to continue those studies to figure that out. Right. That's great. Anything else I should have mentioned or things that we didn't cover about the service, about ticks in general, transmission, anything like that? I think you've done a great job of outlining this. I'm glad it helps. Um, uh, The only thing I'd want to say is, you know, so it's expensive. (laughs) We're we're the first ones to say that, and we're fully aware of that. And I just bearing in mind that we're in this, we're, we're, in this as a nonprofit, we're, we're providing this as a service because we've really come to realize that it's a valuable service that many people want, um, and and we recognize that it's expensive. So one of the things that we've been trying to do over the years is always trying to figure out how to reduce the cost by increasing our, our volumes for one thing. But the other thing we do is we partner with agencies. So sometimes it's employers like utility companies that have people that are out in harm's way that they want to get um, their uh, employees test uh, ticks tested. And so um, we'll partner with them so that uh, we can do a large volume so that we can give them a, a lower cost because our costs are fixed and we need the same personnel whether we're doing one or a thousand ticks. Um, the other thing we do is we partner with uh, municipalities. So it turns out Lyme disease, very often, um, it's a local problem. It's it's people in small communities here in Massachusetts that want information about what to do about the tick that they that just bit them, how to avoid future tick bites. So we've been partnering with uh, with, with individual municipalities to provide subsidized tick testing for those for the residents in those towns. The town benefits because they get information about what pathogens are in their backyard, and the individuals benefit because they get information about their specific exposures, and it costs less money because we sort of share the share the cost of it. We reduce our costs through a, a, a volume discount. The, very often, the, the municipality will pay half, and the individual will pay half. So rather than being a $50 tick test, it can be a $15 tick test for many residents in Massachusetts. It's caught on like crazy here in Massachusetts, where we have 351 towns, each one with its own health agency. We want to reach out to other states and find uh, if there are county-level or town-level uh, municipalities that want to get involved and do this kind of um, partner uh, partner service to offer a tick report. We're basically a laboratory that has capacity. You know, if it were possible for every lab, every county lab to have a testing lab, that'd be great. It just doesn't seem really practical. So what we're trying to do is provide the cap- capacity to um, to basically absorb those uh, those that tick testing capacity for those for those communities. Love it. That's a great way to grow it. Well, I'll keep spreading the message. I know there's another guy out there, Stephen Buner. I don't know if you know him. He's written several books on healing Lyme. He's got a huge community that have already been bitten. They already have tick illness. So I'm sure it would really catch like fire with them too. So I'll do my best to to spread the word to him and his people. Uh, You're listening to Dr. Stephen Rich, Director 
of the Laboratory of Medical Zoology at University of Massachusetts. Check them out, tickreport.com. Anything else we should know website-wise or resources to keep up with you or the work you all are doing? Just check out tickreport.com, or we also have a partner site at the University of Rhode Island, which is tickencounter.org, which has tons of useful information about ticks and tick bites. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. I'm a huge fan of practicality. I'm sure you figured that out by now. I want to know what can you actually do? How do you reduce fears about this issue? I hope this podcast was helpful. Be sure to give me a five-star rating on iTunes. We're over 200 reviews worldwide, which in the grand scheme of things, that's not that many considering I've got over 7 million downloads of this show. So I sincerely appreciate it. I know they don't make it very easy to leave me a review on iTunes, but when you're on your computer, you navigate to my podcast, or when you're on your iPhone, you navigate to my podcast in the app, and you click write a review, type in your stars, type in your comments. Definitely appreciate the feedback, and it helps others see the show. Check out my professional-grade supplements. The Calm Clarity has been a bestseller over the past couple of weeks. I did a presentation all about magnesium L3 and 8 and how this specific patented version called Magteen that I use in my formula is very beneficial, whether it's anxiety, stress, PTSD, trauma, etc. It's very good at helping to cross the blood-brain barrier and really help deliver the magnesium to the brain so we're calming the nervous system down. We're not just driving magnesium to the gut like you do with something like a natural calm, like a magnesium citrate or magnesium oxide. Magnesium L3 and 8, you're crossing that blood-brain barrier, giving much, much more benefit. Check it out. You can go to my clinical uh, store where I've got the lab testing and I've got the supplements available. That is AuraRoots.com, A-U-R-A, Roots, R-O-O-T-S, AuraRoots.com, and check it out. If you want to schedule a 15-minute call, discuss your health symptoms, your health goals, love to chat with you, you can visit my website, EvanBrand.com, and schedule that. I'll talk with you next week. I hope you're enjoying enjoying your summer soak up the sunshine because if you're in the northern hemisphere it's going to be gone before you know it so soak it up enjoy yourself schedule a consult if you need help check out the supplements we'll chat next week bye-bye